0: Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotz from A. Stotts Academy. And I'm here today, continuing my discussion with Larry Swedro, who is head of financial and economic research at Buckingham Wealth Partners. You can learn more about his story in episode six, four, five. Larry deeply understands the world of academic research about investing and especially risk. Today, we're going to discuss two chapters from his book, Investment Mistakes, Even Smart, investors make and how to avoid them. And mistake number 24 is what we're going to talk about, which is, do you believe more heads are better than one? And mistake 25, do you believe active managers will protect you from bear markets? Larry, take it away.
1: Yeah. So one of the things I try to teach people is about conventional wisdom when it comes to investing. And conventional wisdom, I think we could define as things that are just so generally accepted that no one questions them. And the reason is they typically apply in most fields. The problem is, investing is a very different endeavor, as we've discussed, because you're not competing, for example, one on one against someone. You're competing against the collective wisdom of the market. And the conventional wisdom here, why I mention that is, Conventional wisdom always is more heads are better than one, right? And so there's an interesting series of studies that have been done on investment clubs, which is, you know, I think investment clubs really became popular in the 90s when we had the whole dot com era. And you probably remember the Beardstown ladies and stuff. And
0: which, which which that, which just to highlight, that was a sensation. Back in the day, and it was basically communicating to people that, hey, you don't have to be a stock market genius. Here's Mm -hmm. these ladies that don't know much about the market. They do a little reading. They pick their stocks. And as a club, they come up with great ideas. So just for the listeners who haven't experienced that, the phenomena of the Beardstown Ladies Investment Club, there it is.
1: Yeah. We'll talk about these group of grandmothers and their fame or later infamy, as it turns out. So I think the media and all this CNBC became popular and Jim Cramer and, you know, all this banging and clanging and all this stuff got people interested. They were trying to make it fun and get you to trade a lot, of course. So they make money and they and the media, you know, gets you to pay attention so they could sell advertising, you know, et cetera, and getting you to tune in. Right. But as always, what we do here, we turn to the empirical evidence and not the investment pornography you hear in Barron's (laughs) or or CNBC. And so there are a group of studies that we can cite. And the first one that I wanna talk about is by Brad Barber and Terence O'Dean. And they have done a whole series on individual investors showing that individual investors dramatically underperform the market on average. And that's partly because they trade too much. They're overconfident and you make other kinds of behavioral errors. This study was called Too Many Cooks Spoil the Profit, the Performance of Investment Clubs. And they looked at data from one brokerage firm over a six-year period. And they found that the average club trailed the market by almost 4% a year. And it was even a bit worse when you adjusted for these common factors that we've been talking about on our regular broadcast here of size and value and profitability, quality, momentum, etc. So that was one example. Since you mentioned it, we could talk about the story of the Beardstown ladies. Mm. And what's interesting they went on to publish a book imparting their wisdom, and the book had the catchy title of Laying Nest Eggs, How Ten Skirts Beat the Pants Off of Wall Street, and How You Can Too. Now, they have reported these spectacular results, and you know the media picked on up, and they sold their books and everything. And then someone decided we ought to do an audit of their actual results. And they found something very interesting. These chicks were counting as investment returns, their weekly or monthly contributions to the investment fund they had. And when they ran the numbers, they actually had dramatically underperformed the market, were so embarrassed that they stopped publishing anything. They underperformed the market over the period of the study which is about three years, by a cumulative 16%. So that's one example. But that's not even my favorite one. And by the way, it's hard to underperform over a three-year period by 16. You couldn't do it (laughs) if you tried, because the market is too efficient. But my favorite story is about the Mensa Investment Club. It's my favorite story, because for those of you who don't know, the Mensa Club, you have to be in the top 2% of IQ to be in there. So if anyone could beat the market, you would think it would be these super geniuses who were members of this club. Well, Smart Money Magazine in 2001 wrote an article and reported that while over the 15-year prior years, the S&P had returned 15%. What do you think the Mensa Club had done, Andrew? Take a guess.
0: 15%. But they're geniuses. I mean, come on. They should be outperforming that massively.
1: Theory, right? And it, we know it's hard to underperform too, right? You should <laughs> accept for expenses. So maybe you would think maybe if markets are efficient. They lose by one. Of, just take a guess. What do you think they earn?
0: Let's say 5%.
1: No, you're double. Worse than the but,
0: Beardstown ladies.
1: Yeah, they earn 2.5% a year. One investor, a guy named Warren Smith, had reported that he was an investor for 35 years. And he calculated his original investment of 5300 had turned into $9,300, did not even double over the 35 years. And investment in the S&P would have produced over 300000 <laughs> so uh... 30 times as much money. There's examples of more heads are not better than one.
0: Oh, what a lesson. And, you know, also more heads are are not better than one is another aspect, too, when you think about collective decision making, you know, whatever it was that caused this sometimes it's hubris you know sometimes it's it but you know what's interesting is that so many companies and businesses around the world in the fund management space and others take comfort in the idea that they've got a committee or a community group or that it's collective in fact ray dalio talks about making these kind of collective decisions but giving a little bit more weight to some people that you think okay this person should know more but Should we take any comfort in that when we do that type of decision-making process?
1: Yeah, your best bet is simply, as we've talked on our previous episodes, just take the collective wisdom of the market. You have to remember that Brad Barber and Odean's study, Too Many Cooks Spoiling the Broth, found that the average investor underperformed by about 4% a year before adjusting for risk and bit worse after. But most of that was probably accounted for. Their turnover was sixty-five percent a year. Now that's actually a little bit better than the average turnover Barber had found for individuals. You know, they, they found seventy-five percent for the average individual. So, you know, but their stock picking happened to be even worse. <laughs> but most of it was accounted for. Just they're just turnover, and people are just overconfident. In fact. Almost every financial advisor that I talk to, I know this is my experience, and we kind of chat about it over the years. It's purely anecdotal. Haven't done a study on it. But if I ask other advisors what group of individuals as a profession have the worst investment track record, they make the worst, take a guess what you think it might be. What What? profession?
0: Well, one of the things I always said when I worked at a sell side, as a sell-side analyst at a broker and everybody's talking ideas in the stock market, I was always saying, if we track the performance of my colleagues and all of us, I can guarantee you we're underperforming the market pretty significantly and we're in the financial industry sitting on top of the market. In theory, we should be outperforming. So I would say, number one, financial industry is a huge underperformer when it comes to certainly their personal bets.
1: Yeah, that that may be true. Again, I don't have any evidence well, other that's, than my own That's
0: experience. the point of talking but to you. My experience.
1: Yeah, my experience is doctors by far are the worst. And that's because they make the mistake of thinking because they're intelligent, that they know something the market doesn't, or they can interpret it better. And so- that overconfidence leads to probably too much trading, taking too much risk, and therefore underperforming. And my experience is the people who make the best investors by far, and this is corroborated when I talk to other advisors, Mm. again, purely anecdotal, I have to admit, are engineers, because the engineers read the literature and they understand, hey, this is science, it's math, this is the evidence, and they tend to follow it which means once they have read books like mine or Bill Bernstein's or others, they say, okay, I'm going to be this systematic investor and I'm just going to accept market returns taking the risks that are appropriate for me, like value and size and other invest in these factors. And they tend to stay the course, rebalance, and don't panic when something underperforms for three or four or five years because they understand it's likely to be investment noise and not ending up chasing recent returns.
0: And for those doctors out there, they should read this book, The White Coat Investor, one of of the great books that's a resource for, for doctors. And I've just recently had James who wrote this book on the podcast, and it gives some really good thinking for doctors in that case. And the other one that I would add to that is entrepreneurs, business owners, because-
1: Yeah, they, I would agree. In, you know in fact, these are the guys that
0: have all the success in their business. They got a lot of money. They're confident in what they're doing. And then yeah. they take that confidence and they stroll into the, the market. And they it's just, a, it's a train wreck. Uh,
1: and then they tend to take concentrated bets because that's what made them successful. And so, yeah, I absolutely agree. I would put entrepreneurs- they are often what we call serial millionaires. They and make a fortune and they turn they have a large fortune, they turn it into a small one, then go out and build a business again, create a big fortune, and then go invest it and turn it back into a small fortune.
0: I have a story in relation to that that's a, a short one that we'll wrap this one up on and go on to mistake 25. But I was, you know, helped an entrepreneur to sell their business and make a lot of money from it. And there was a couple of things the first one is there the we used a, a bank out of hong kong to handle the transaction between the buyer and seller and all that and the what happened was the banker showed up once everything was getting ready to happen and he's like i'm going to you know talk to you about managing your money mm-hmm. and he talked to each person involved and you know everybody was paid through that bank so we were a captive audience, but I told that banker, I said, look, just do me a favor. And he says, yes, anything, what, what do you want? I said, never call me, never mm-hmm. contact me. And he's like, okay, that's clear. And he never contacted me. Now for the other guys that had their accounts and had their profits from the, the gain of selling their business, within a very short amount of time, they had lost a substantial amount of the money they had made by listening to this guy who had given them all kinds of products that the bank was selling and he, they were losing, I mean, as much as 50% of their overall amount. And what makes it even worse was that one of the guys, the accountant that did his submitted his taxes, the tax guy that helped him with his taxes made a mistake. And it ended up that he ended up owing a lot more money. And it was, there was a penalty because of something that wasn't disclosed. It wasn't that he didn't pay, but he had to pay like a million dollar penalty to the IRS. And there was a point of, you know, desperation where I can tell you that guy felt like he'd lost almost everything that he built up over 20 years. And I can tell you that is a desperate feeling when you have a family and all of that, that it was almost suicidal. So for those entrepreneurs out there, tread carefully when you get out of, you know, and read your books.
1: Yeah, it's a classic mistake. We talk about one of the worst mistakes investors make is once you have sufficient assets, to enjoy your life, that marginal utility wealth is close to zero, and you should be taking those chips off the table. So my line is, once you've won the game, say you've got $5 million, and a 4% use that as a general rule as a safe harbor withdrawal, you got 5 million bucks, that's 200,000 a year Right, if you can't live on two hundred thousand dollars a year, I'm sorry, something is wrong. You could be happy with that, you know. Most people can do that, and therefore, just invest very conservatively, diversify your portfolio, don't make any big bets, and you'll be fine. Yeah. But so many people don't do that, and they fail to take those chips off the table once they've won the game.
0: So let's move on to the next mistake. And I'm gonna preface it with like the bear markets that I've lived through. The first one was 1997 crisis in Asia, which was centered here in Bangkok, Thailand. And from when I started working in the stock market for my fourth month in the stock market, the Thai stock market had peaked at 1789. Many years went by and it was probably from, it was about five or six years The market went to a low of 200. So we're talking about a 90% fall, roughly. And the currency also collapsed. So if a US dollar investor invested in Thailand, you would have had a 95% loss if you had bought at that top and you had held it to that bottom. So that was my first experience with a crash. And our domestic economy collapsed by 11% in 1998 after that happened. So it was a brutal crash. And then we had 2008 which was another, you know, crash. And also we had 19, sorry, I I missed the dot-com bubble because the Asian crisis didn't really hit America that much. But we had the dot-com bubble happen and the crash after that. And then we had the 2008, and then we had some of the COVID stuff that's been going on. So these are the concepts of, you know, bear markets are pretty brutal. But luckily, now I can tell you at the time that the Thai market went through this collapse, I knew nothing about markets. I was a beginner. I was just learning. So how could I add any perspective to it? I really couldn't. But now, Larry, I'm experienced. I should be able to protect people from bear markets. So let's talk about mistake 25. Do you believe active managers will protect you from bear markets?
1: Well, the first thing we should do is admit that active managers start off with an advantage headed into a bear market because a passive systematic investor is going to earn the return of the market. They're not getting in and out of the market, right? Now, they may have, if the market had done very well before the bear market, they would have rebalanced the portfolio if they weren't 100% equities, taking some of those chips off the table and selling high. And then when the bear market hits, if they stay disciplined, they get to buy low and can even outperform the very funds they invest in simply by doing that, if they stay the course. But active managers have the ability, this is what they tout, we can get you out before the bear emerges from its hibernation and we'll get you back in before the bull enters the arena again. So they can move to cash, that's a clear advantage. The question is, what does the empirical evidence say not what they market as their skill set, right? The empirical evidence has found very clearly that active managers, on average, tend to have the largest cash positions just before bear markets and the smallest cash positions just as the bull market is getting started. And so they're exactly the opposite, exactly the opposite of what happened. Here's an example. In 1973, okay, that was the, the first big bear market before the ones you mentioned, mutual fund reserves stood at a then almost record low of 4%.
0: So in other words, right? they're fully invested at the peak.
1: Basically, fully invested 4%. <clears throat> at the ensuing low, it was 13%. <laughs> exactly <laughs> backwards. They could have been sitting with thirteen percent cash, maybe before, and all you know. And then when it hit the bottom, they were, you know they were then be able to buy because they had cash, but not not the case, you know. And then they would have had a very low four percent at the low. They were exactly the opposite. Morningstar has done studies and found no evidence of this. Vanguard did a study on this issue that they published, and they concluded it didn't matter whether an active manager was operating in a bear market, a bull market that precedes or follows it, or across longer time cycles. The combination of cost, security selection, and market timing proved difficult hurdle to overcome. Past success in overcoming these hurdles provided no evidence of their future ability to do it. They concluded, we find little evidence to support the purported benefits of active management during periods of market stress. You have to remember, while Vanguard is a leading provider of index funds, they're also a provider of a large amount of active funds. And they're admitting <laughs> you know, that act, there's no evidence that active managers can protect you from bear markets.
0: Mm. And it's oftentimes that I've looked at stock charts and market charts, and you look back over time and you go, why didn't I invest then? <laughs> why wasn't it so obvious then? And what I oftentimes think about is that the first thing is this is hindsight bias, of course. we We can't know at that time that we're at the bottom, let's say. But I also think that there are some other factors. And let's just think about an individual investor. For an individual investor to outperform through bear markets, really what it means is that first, you have to be able to detect that you're going into a bear market. Okay, that's the first thing. Second thing is you've got to have, you've got to know what to do. Let's just say that's not too complicated. You just go to cash. And then the third thing is you've got to do it. Now,
1: the hardest part is then getting back in.
0: Right. Because now let's go down to the bottom of the market. Economy's terrible. The market's terrible. You think you could be losing your job or you're losing big customers in the company that you own and the way you feel about your own financial situation has shifted probably a lot. So then the issue of, you know, to understand you're at a bottom or at a, a bear market bottom, that's step number one, which is hard enough already then you've got to have the cash to be able to act. And then you've got to have the guts to be able to act. And I think if you add all those things up, it's very hard for most people to make. I, I would say that the people who tell the story of how they you know, bought at the bottom either are lying, they're misrepresenting the past, or if it's truly the case, it was purely by luck.
1: Yeah, well, here's a good example to illustrate your point. So let's say you were smart enough to get out before the bear market hit in November, I think, of 07 is when it began, right? Now it's March, I think, 9th of 2009 when the market bottomed out, okay? And let's say you now can't foresee what stock prices will do, but you are so brilliant, you could predict the economy. And what happens? The unemployment rate is continuing to go up, reaching 10% by the end of the year and staying there for a while. The economy goes crashing into a recession in the second and third quarters. And so you knowing that, stay out of the market. And it went up like 55%. (laughs) So even if you miss the downside, you then miss the fifty-five percent upside. That's the real problem, which is why Peter Lynch says he never even met anyone who was successful timing the market. It's just for difficult. Now I will add this for our listeners: Mm. there is one strategy that, over the long term, on average, that has helped investors reduce the risk, not eliminate them. Of getting hit by a severe bear market, and that's using trend-following strategies. Now, uh, those trend-following, they miss the beginnings of bull markets, they get you in later, and they miss the end of bull markets when bear markets come because it takes a while for the signals to turn, depending upon whether using what are called fast signals, like that turn in one month or an intermediate that might turn in three to six months, or whatever the signal is. The problem is this. On average, over the very long term, trend following has helped. But because most of the time the market is going up, you're going to underperform because you're missing much of those turns because it hasn't gotten you in. And so you could go for a decade underperforming, and then 209 comes and then it bails you out because it got you out before and, you know, not right away, but it kept you away from much of the severity of the market. And eventually within a few months got you back in. Mm. But how many people could stay disciplined with a strategy for 10 years of dramatically underperforming to be saved by that one short period? Not many can do that. And that's why a real problem. Unless you could stay with that, I tell people avoid trend following. But if you can stay with it, then there is evidence that adding some exposure to a trend following has helped reduce the downside risk.
0: So Mm -hmm. if
1: you're a risk averse investor, it's worth considering a fund that uses a trend following strategy for at least a portion of your portfolio.
0: And what, if you were, maybe we'll wrap this one up by just kind of thinking about the type of investor who they're not going to get in and out of the market. They want to build kind of an all-weather style of portfolio. They understand the market's going to crash. You know, they'd prefer not to go down by 50%. You know, it's just brutal. And they're willing to give up some of the upside when it goes up so they they are optimizing for lower volatility that they can bear let's say and we're talking about kind of the the average person we're not talking about some extreme example but what would be a type of asset construction or asset allocation that could be you know valuable over a long term
1: well my answer is pretty simple the only way to help really minimize those risks and really be safe is to don't take risk, and then <laughs> then you don't get any returns in real terms, and it's hard to reach your goals. So what's the next best thing? The next best thing is to what the term I use is to hyper diversify, meaning own like Ray Dalio and on lots of different assets that have unique risks. Some of them have nothing to do. With what's going on with the economy, the stock market. So things like reinsurance, as you know, 2022 was a horrible year for both stocks and bonds, and reinsurance funds did fine. Mm. This year was another really bad year, you know, for bond funds. Again, although it got a little better in the last week or so, and everything except basically large cap growth stocks pretty much didn't do anything. But reinsurance. The fund I own is up 42%. Mm. Now, it had other bad years, and that's okay. I live with them. In fact, I then buy more because I know when the fund loses money, then the premiums go up, the underwriting standards get tighter, and my expected returns go up. So So this this would be considered
0: an uncorrelated or low-correlated asset? It's
1: totally uncorrelated because there's no reason, logically, that hurricanes- or earthquakes really affect stock market, unless it's an unbelievably extreme, you know, event like that, you know, an earthquake that caused the Nakashima Tokyo plant, Mm. what if that had caused some atomic huge problem and shut the global economy? Yeah, Mm. something like that is obviously possible. But, you know, the expectation is the vast majority of the time, you're going to have uncorrelated assets. There are other long-short strategies that are market neutral. AQR, for example, I invest in their long-short fund, which goes long value, short growth. It goes long positive momentum and short negative momentum, stocks, bonds, commodities, and currency. And it does it with two other factors. And its correlation with the market is about zero. Mm. There are some other things as well things like drug royalties as well life settlements for example there are no logical reason for them to be correlated so there are assets that also have lower correlation so for example private credit that's floating rate and also seniors secured and backed by private equity so it's less risky than far less risky than junk bonds for example and it's floating rate so you don't have the Bond risk, either. You have some economic cycle risk, of course. But the fund I invest in, because of very tight covenants, low LTVs, and the private equity backers who tend to step in, because if the private equity owner, the private lenders declare a default, they get wiped out. Mm. So they, not always, but often they will step in and provide more equity, allow for a restructuring and a chance. Evidence shows that just senior secured losses are about 1% a year, and they're yielding about today 11 or 12 Now, senior secured backed by private equity, the losses are only about 25 basis points. Mm. In 2020, that fund during the COVID crisis dropped 3% in a month when the economy didn't tank, quickly rebounded, and ended up for the year. And in 2022, the fund was up, unlike bond funds. So it's going to have some correlation with economic cycle risk, Hmm. but not a lot. And it actually helps against the risk of inflation because it's all floating rate debt. So you're trading off some more economic cycle risk that, say, US Treasuries don't have, but to get rid of the inflation risk that Treasuries have unless you own tips. So, I so think- those are some examples, just hyper diverse. Don't own only U.S. Don't own only Thai land. <laughs> if a Thai investor had had 50% of his portfolio in U.S. stocks, which is what the market cap mm. roughly or even at that time, maybe was 60%, you know, would have been much better off. So same yep. thing, U.S. investors should not have a you know, 80, 90, or 100% in the U.S., my opinion is they should market cap weight in that 50 to 60% kind of range.
0: And if if an investor owns land, let's just say they own land straight out, we kind of don't count that as part of their investment portfolio because it's not something liquid, but there's an example of an asset. It's not being priced every day. Farmland is another
1: good asset. That's farmland, timberland. There are even funds that invest those things are worth considering now you do have to consider the costs and the fees and tax issues but yeah those are exactly the kind of things that investors should consider to diversify more broadly infrastructure funds that invest in toll highways and mm. you know gasoline pipelines and stuff they tend to have inflation protections as well and what about degree, and they're uncorrelated at least to some degree
0: And what about, you know, obviously the big thing we're trying to protect against is a, you know, a crazy loss coming from the equity market. What about a inverse, having an inverse type of fund or ETF, or is that about- I
1: would just, just as soon as you hear those words, inverse, and, and then add leverage to it, run as fast as you can. Why? The expectation has to be negative returns.
0: But let's, so let's let me just
1: positive return. let
0: me let me just push back. I I do agree the leveraging of it is kind of not necessary. But let's just say one to one negative return when the market goes up by ten percent, this is going to go down by ten percent. Yeah, so now, but
1: then just don't invest and take that money and buy a treasury bill and you get five percent. All you did is you you did one investment. One is going up while the other is going down. Why do you? Care? That's no return and they're paying expenses on both of those funds <laughs> that, that makes no sense Now, well, only for a tactician who's trying to time it you know fine you will you think you're going to be successful you could predict the bear market feel free go ahead and buy a triple leveraged inverse fund and you could check the track record of those funds many of them literally go to zero mm, because of the leverage
0: yeah Well, that's a lot of great wrap up there related to really actionable advice. And so I appreciate that. So I want to thank you, Larry, for another great discussion about creating, growing and protecting wealth. And for listeners out there who want to keep up with all that Larry is doing, which is a lot, find him on Twitter at Larry Swedro. And also you can find him on LinkedIn and you'll see all that he's doing. And I trust, trust me, you're going to see a lot of stuff. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew. Saying, "I'll see you on the upside."